Welcome to KYH2O, a podcast about all things water in Kentucky. I'm Carmen Agaritas, an Extension Associate Professor in the Biosystems and Agricultural Engineering Department at the University of Kentucky. And I'm Amanda Gumbert, an Extension Specialist for Water Quality with the University of Kentucky Cooperative Extension Service. Join us as we get our feet wet exploring Kentucky's water resources. Amanda, you got to go out uh, and visit with Greg Munshaw and talk about something that all of us have near and dear to our hearts, at least all of us homeowners, and that's turf. Exactly. Um, so I met with Dr. Greg Munshaw. He is an extension specialist for turf grass um, here in the College of Agriculture, Food and Environment. And um, I've known Greg a long time, but it was really interesting to catch up with him and hear a little bit about um, lawns, which, you know, from an environmental perspective, um, kind of get a bad rap. They do. They're very uh, much a monoculture. They're a monoculture, and I think we... Um, we kind of tend to think that, you know, in order to have this lush green monoculture lawn, that it requires a lot of inputs. And those inputs are often not associated with being environmentally friendly and maybe not good for water quality. So let's kind of start at the beginning a little bit of, if we look around our urban landscapes versus our rural landscapes, they look really different. Um, they do look really different. And I have always wondered how in the world we got to having this green lawn system that we do. Right, and I don't know about you, so but I grew up in the country and we still had a big lawn, like an acre or more it seemed like of lawn. So um, my siblings and I, of course, got to spend our summers um, you know, doing our annual or weekly chore of helping mom mow the grass. And um, my mom actually likes to mow the grass, so there are those people in the world that, that do enjoy that task. And I do sometimes, it's a little meditative, but um, how did we get here? So let's listen to Greg and he'll describe a little bit about what he knows about the history of lawns in America. With the baby boomer generation post pre-World War II, that's when lawns really took off. And we went from uh, bags of seed that would come with with uh, a good portion of clover, white clover in the bags to post-World War II, we had commercials on television and on radio that uh, said, you need to have a mono species in your, in your lawn. It needs to be a mono stand of one thing, no clover, no nothing. And back in the old days, they would put clover in because that would fertilize the lawn for, for the, uh, the neighborhoods. Um, but these, some of these grass seed companies did a really good job of convincing people that that's weedy and not attractive and because it's a broadleaf and it stands out. Um, so if you're looking for uniformity in a lawn, if you see anything but one thing, one kind of grass, not even multiple kind of, kinds of grasses, then it's the quality of that grass of that lawn decreases. And so that's what has been pounded into consumers' heads for years. There's commercials on TV today that, that show that kind of thing. But we're coming from full circle in that we've done quite a bit of clover work over the last number of years and finding great benefits. And, uh, um, you know, if, if that differences in texture in the lawn doesn't really concern people, then there's a whole bunch of benefits, including not having to fertilize, including attracting pollinators to your lawn, you know, there's, there's all sorts of reasons to in, include something like white clover in a lawn. Um, environmentally, obviously a great thing, but uh, 
Um, you know, when we think about concern with bees, you know, if we can increase their habitat, that's, uh, that's always good. So it's interesting to hear Greg talk about um, post-World War II um, lawns and subdivisions and how the housing boom and um, brought forth the subdivisions and then that created these you know small patches of grass and lawn and how those were managed and Carmen you recently sent me an interesting video clip and we'll share this in our show notes um, about the history of lawns in America from the New York Times and so that was pretty entertaining so you know I'm not a, a real hands-on um, lawn maintainer. I tend to be that neighbor that people kind of look at and think, oh no, here she is. Um, because I'm more interested in um, some of the other plants that I may be putting out for either, you know, garden and food production or some native plants or things that flower and bloom. And so the grass tends to be an afterthought. And so I kind of, you know, sometimes I look at my lawn, I think mm, we could do a better job. Um, but even Greg said that his lawn has some brown spots in it and that he's okay with that. So let's let him describe a little bit about what his lawn looks like and, um, you know, maybe the, the changeover of going from um, multiple species to monospecies. The amount of clover acreage planted in central Kentucky has increased tremendously. So people are buying into it. It's good to see. Um, because we don't need to have perfect lawns. Um, that's, that's one of those things that's just an absolute misnomer is that your lawn has to be a, a monostand and always glowing green. Um, mine currently has not been watered since the last time it rained and I've got brown spots all over it and that's okay. It'll come back this fall and, and fill back in. You know, one of the interesting things for me um, and we hear this a lot, especially if we go into a drought, is about irrigating. And some of my neighbors uh, in the neighborhood I'm at and close to my house also have irrigation systems. And I notice that, you know, it's, it's really nice when it's hot in the summer and you jog by and you get sprinkled by them. Um, but Greg does talk a little bit about that. And, you know, this question of do we overwater our lawns? Do they really need as much as waters we're giving them. Right, because if we think about, you know, water usage and water quantity, um, lawns can take up a lot of water in terms of water usage if we do irrigate them. Generally, people that have in-ground irrigation systems tend to overdo it with water. They have their their timer set and the, the water starts every other morning or whatever it is and runs for however many minutes. And usually there's too much water going out. So. Uh, generally the rule of thumb is for watering lawns, if you can walk across that lawn and the grass doesn't spring back immediately and you leave footprints, that's when you want to water it because it's starting to show the first signs of drought stress. Um, at that point you can water deeply, fill the soil back up and then leave it for another week or two or whatever it takes depending on rain um, to, to start showing the first signs of drought again and just keep repeating that process. Grasses don't need to have water every couple of days to, to do well. Matter of fact, they'll do better with, with less water and send down deeper roots to find more water in the soil. You know, and the part that I thought was really interesting, and this was, I got this from him too on other occasions, was this, because we were talking about just was turf with fields, sports fields, because um, I'm always complaining about the ones around where my kids play, is this idea that water um, more, but really infrequent. Oh. Or, or so so for example like this idea that you want the roots to 
to go deep. Mm -hmm. um, and that was just something, because we were talking about like the drainage systems within fields, mm -hmm. that he's like, yeah, you want to keep that water down lower so that the roots actually want to drive down and get it so it makes yeah. the grass stronger, right. which I always thought was a really interesting thing that I don't think we always think about is when we keep giving it everything it needs, it has no reason to try to adapt to get right. something else. Yeah, so I was glad to hear that Greg mentioned that it's, it's maybe better for um, for lawns to have less water so the grasses work a little harder um, and get their root systems to, to you know grow deeper into the soil <clears throat> to access that water because you know when they spend more time putting energy into the root system that helps hold soil in place um, and, and as well as makes that plant a little healthier. You know because I, I played soccer my kids play soccer you know we have we have sports fields and we think about them you know watering them a lot to keep them really lush and green but it's this really interesting balance between how much you let the water infiltrate down so that the roots actually as you talk about have to drive down and go deeper to get what they want so it's actually really a stronger turf so maybe that really frequent watering is not really a good thing for our lawns. Yeah, I think sometimes we just um, aren't very patient. And so we think, oh, well, we'll just water this real quickly or we'll turn the sprinkler on or then we turn it on and then we feel guilty about using water on the lawn. And so then we turn it off and, you know, just it really would be better if we just did a, a longer water less frequently. I think the other thing that we um, need to think about in, in terms of having environmentally friendly lawns is to make sure we're picking the right kind of grass to have on the lawn. and. Um, you know, and Greg is, again, the expert here, and so let's let him talk to us about what he would pick as the best grass for Kentucky lawns. So the best grass for use uh, generally on lawns across the entire state of Kentucky is tall fescue. Now, the bad thing is if you go to a store, you'll see tall fescue on the shelf, and there'll be uh, expensive tall fescue and less expensive tall fescue. Generally, like anything else, you get what you pay for. And if, um, if there's a bag of seed that says Kentucky 31 tall fescue on it, you wanna steer clear of it. That is an old forage type tall fescue that is still being sold for lawns, but really doesn't have a place for us uh, for lawns just because uh, it's, it grows very quickly, so you're mowing more often. Um, and obviously we want to reduce mowing as much as we possibly can because that's reduced emissions to, to the environment. Uh, and obviously savings, cost savings for, for not mowing as often. Uh, it's less dense, so you're going to have more weed problems in Kentucky 31. And uh, the color is lighter green, so people tend to try and over fertilize it to try and get it darker green like their neighbor's lawns. And so a lot of problems with those, with that older Kentucky 31 tall fescue, Turf type tall fescues on the other hand, which have been uh, bred over the last 20 some years, uh, have improved tremendously over the old tall fescues. And over the last five, 10 years, the grasses that are out there are so pretty that it's hard to tell some of them apart between Kentucky bluegrass and, and tall fescue. And so turf type tall fescues spend some extra money up front and it will save money down the road on inputs, less fertilizer, less water, less mowing. Yes, it, it should say turf type tall fescue on the bag. If not, uh, people can go to our website and, and we've got a list of, of recommended cultivars for Kentucky that have done well in Lexington and uh, um, can use that information to, to go out and find what's available to them. You know, and as Greg mentions, um, the 
University of Kentucky Cooperative Extension Service does have a lot of information related to turf grass and turf species, and we'll include those websites um, in our show notes. But um, I thought it was interesting for him to, to report that some of the best grasses might not be commercially available or easily available for the average homeowner. Um, I know I've gone into Home Depot or um, Lowe's or you know other you know big box stores to try to find you know a bag of grass seed, and it's hard to tell exactly what the species is because of all of the marketing language that's used. I mean, it's it's, it's difficult to pick something out, right? You go and there's shelves upon shelves of. Uh, Grass A, grass B, this one has, you know, some sort of coating on it. This one has mulch, this one has that. And it's it's hard to know for the just typical person that doesn't do what Greg does, what should I buy for my lawn? Well, and I'm glad you mentioned the, the seed coatings um, because let's listen to Greg describe um, what he recommends in terms of, of seed selection. So it's actually hard to buy seed these days that doesn't have something coated on it, especially for the homeowner market. If you go into a big box store, a lot of those will have mulch with them or some kind of coatings that claim better establishment or less disease pressure or whatever. And I've done a lot of research on coatings over the years and generally we don't see any benefit whatsoever from coatings. It's a way for the seed companies to sell seed, uh, less seed for the same amount of cost, basically. And so uh, those that's not necessarily something that uh, um, I like to see any sort of coating whatsoever. Coating versus mulch, though. Mulch is something you want to steer clear from completely because that is a whole bunch of junk in a bag that essentially does nothing for you. So, you know, a lot of these labels will say the mulch will help hold the, the seed in place, the soil in place, all of that stuff is very true, but you can buy a bale of straw, um, very, really, really cheap compared to what these bags of mulch and seed go for and, uh, and do the same thing yourself. So another thing we might notice in our um, urban lawns is we tend to not have any organic matter in there or not much and it might not be something that a lot of people pay attention to but that organic matter um, helps the whatever plant is growing there by helping it um, retain some moisture it provides a food source for um, microbes that will help make some nutrients more available for the plants that are growing in the soil um, but because of our developmental strategies it with um, um, with creating subdivisions and, and building, we tend to scrape off all that organic matter. I look at organic matter, and I think just from conversations I've had with you, but I really focus on it from a water perspective. Um, and we, you know, when Greg's talked a bit about, you know, irrigation of our lawn, if we want to conserve and things like that, organic matter has some wonderful properties that, that helps benefit the soil just regard to water. You know, so as you mentioned, um, it's able to hold water longer, so the plants are able to actually um, have more water available to use in it. Uh, so you don't have to worry so much when uh, we don't get so much rain or the rain's sporadic in here. Um, and it also helps with nutrient retention, as you mentioned that. So even if we do have water that's applied or things like that, then um, it's bonding 
prevent certain uh, constituents or nutrients that we don't want to run off. It, it kind of holds those better in place. And so you know, just besides the, the benefits for its growing and the carbon sources and things like that, just from a water budget perspective, just the ability to hold water on site, I think is a wonderful thing in organic matter that we don't probably quite appreciate enough. And it takes a while to build up organic matter in soil. So anytime we can do things like adding a little straw when we are seeding or, you know, putting some compost on when we have an opportunity to do that. Greg affirms the, the need for organic matter in soils um, when he talks a little bit about how we can add organic matter. And it makes me think um, I'm doing the right thing by not bagging up my lawn clippings, by mulching my leaves. You know, I, I think, especially because I live in an urban area, um, it's an older neighborhood, but any way to add that carbon into the soil, that organic matter, is, is going to be beneficial. It's going to help. So I was out in the, in the yard the other day with my son, and um, I think his father put him up to this, but he was crumbling leaves. And I looked over at him, and he's like, look, Mama, I'm making soil. So, so that was like the best day of my life, right? Um, but yeah, anything with leaves, grass clippings, anything we can do is good for that. So anytime we can add organic matter, especially to our urban soils where they've been stripped by dozers when the houses were built, usually a good thing. Um, the problem with most of these, though, is that you're getting so little it's probably not doing much, much benefit in terms of improving the soil. Um, to improve soils, we really need to get into incorporating compost or something into them after aerification to, um, to build up the soil to get it to, to be like topsoil. And that's a whole long drawn out process to, to get improved soils over, over time. Well, thanks for listening to another episode of KYH2O. You can find us on your favorite podcast platform, and we invite you to subscribe and review us. You've been listening to Carmen Agaritas and Amanda Gumbert. Learn more about water at uky.edu forward slash BAE forward slash KYH2O. Subscribe to hear all episodes of KYH2O.